Thank you, David. Today is April 1st, a little hot. Okay. Okay, there is our April Fool this, for this morning. April 1st is commonly known as April Fool's Day. Oh, don't I know it. Jimmy's in my class. It's on. It's on. Jimmy okay. Harris. <laughs> well, you brought it up. It is a day of practical jokes, isn't it? It's uh, trying to dupe those who are gullible. Don't be surprised if someone says uh, your shoes are tied. That's why I wear boots, no laces, it won't work on me. Uh, might say something's crawling on your back or hey, someone wrote gullible on the ceiling. I hope you did not look up. Now, I have not decided whether I like it or not. As Randy has said, my youngest one, Jimmy, loves this day. And uh, this morning, well, let's just say he delayed me quite a bit trying to undo the things he had done early in the morning. I was wondering why his alarm was going off at 6.30. That's when I get up to make sure I'm over here and get ready, but he doesn't have to get up at 6.30, so now I knew as soon as I got downstairs. Um, now, as much as we may enjoy doing this, we also need to be careful about it, too, because sometimes our practical jokes can get out of hand, and even if your motive is simply to bring a little humor, a little levity into the normal, boring life, be careful how you do it, because if you do get let it get out of hand, you may end up hurting somebody, uh, or they may not share your particular sense of humor, and that doesn't always go well either. So enjoy the day, but uh, be careful as well. Now, a question comes up, though, is uh, how exactly did this April Fool's Day get started? I love history, and I love to try and figure out where these things come from. Some people don't always share that, but it is usually interesting. Why do we do this? Why do we call it April Fool's Day? Well, it's somewhat obscure in origin. Some scholars think it has something to do with spring equinox, when nature fools you with a change in the weather. Others have tried to trace it to ancient customs that are related to the coming of spring. There was an ancient festival called Hilaria. I think you can get the idea of that. Our word hilarious comes from that. Held on March 25th in ancient Rome. There was also the Holt Festival in India that ends on March 31st. Both those days do encompass some of the elements we see happen on April Fool's Day, practical joking and all. However, it seems more likely that our modern Custom has its origin in the 18th century because it was in the 1700s that this practice became widespread in England and the British brought it here to America. It was apparently started in France by Charles IX and it occurred when he switched that country from using the Julian counter, calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Now the two calendars were similar but they differed in a few areas. One was the actual length of a year, and the other was in calculating the date of Resurrection Sunday. Commonly called Easter, but that's a bad name for it. It's better Resurrection Sunday. We'll explain that next week. Now, in practical terms, the Julian calendar was slightly shorter than an actual year. And as the centuries were going on, seasons were not matching what was going on with the weather. In fact, if it had continued, we would be celebrating uh, at this point, the beginning of winter, because winter would be May, and uh, spring would be starting sometime in August, and uh, the flowers would be, or the uh, trees would be changing color and falling off in February. So it was actually a problem. If you're trying to plant your crops each year on the same date, it kept changing on you. Well, the Gregorian, Gregorian calendar, that's the calendar that we use, corrected all those things, and so now our months still line up with the seasons properly. You should be grateful for that. Now, what does that have to do with April Fool's Day, right? Like, where is he going with all this? Well, it has to do this. In past centuries, kings would set the date when the year would begin. And different countries had different dates that they say the year would begin. And in France, it apparently began about or on April 1st. But when King Charles IX in 1564 changed the calendar from Julian to Gregorian. He also changed the date of the starting of the year. So instead of April 1st, it moved to January 1st, 
like most of the other nations in Europe were following. Now, there were those who, like in our own time, are resistant to change. They didn't like this. They still wanted to say, no, April 1st is the date of the new year. Now, the French people, being a fun-loving people that they are, they would play practical jokes on those who would do this. Uh, it actually had something to do with sticking fish in various places around them that would then stink. And uh, so the name became known as Poisson d'Avril, meaning April fish. And that's kind of where we got April Fool's Day, i.e. practical jokes. Now, the scripture doesn't say anything about April Fool's Day, but it does talk a lot about fools, doesn't it? And this morning, I'm going to use that just as a basis to launch off and talk about the various types of fools mentioned in scripture. We're going to talk about four different types, the ignorant fool, educated fool, apathetic fool, and the wise fool. The first three are deadly. They are deadly. The fourth, the wise fool, is the type of fool we should strive to be. Well, what exactly is a fool? Webster gives us a definition, and among those definitions, first, a noun is a person lacking in judgment or prudence, going on a harmlessly deranged person or one lacking in common powers of understanding, uh, transitive verb to spend on trifles or without advantage, fritter away, or to spend time idly or aimlessly. These would people that the dictionary would say are fools. So by those definitions, we could say that a fool is someone who is marked by being absurd, ridiculous, or silly. That would be Webster's definitions. Now, God has a very strong definition for a fool. Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So who is the fool? The one that denies the presence and activity of the true God. Such denials range from an outward defiance to passive neglect. There are those who are atheists. They deny that God exists, and they will proudly tell you so. We do not believe God exists. Strange group, they are defined by something they don't believe is there, but such as they are. There are those that claim to be theists. They believe in God, but in all their way of manner of life, they live as if there was no God. They are, in reality, practical atheists because their lives or live that way. There are also those that claim to believe in God, but they don't believe in the true God. They are those who believe that there is some other God, and they follow that God in some sort of false religious system. And since their God is not the God of the Bible, it is not the God that created them, they also would fit into this category of biblical fools. Now, at this point, we must acknowledge there are many people who are in this category of ignorant fools. They have never heard the truth of the scriptures. They have never been told about what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. These are people who do absurd things. They behave in ways that are silly. And if you watch practices of those in other religions, false religions, you will see many of their practices are really silly. The things they do, thinking that somehow this is going to gain the attention of their God and gain them favor with him. They follow a manner of life that seems ridiculous, and biblically is ridiculous, simply because they don't know any better. This is what they know. Think about those who are caught up in the false religions. That's all they know is this false religion, and they're ignorant of the truth. There are those who worship na nature, and that's an increasing number even within our own land. They worship nature. Now, I'm going to say something some of you think it's political. It's not. The whole push on global warming has to do with the worship of nature more than anything else. And it's, uh, frankly, it's really bad science. That's my background. Uh, but it's a push. There is a strong religious element within it. It is increasing in our land, as well as just the number of those who are saying that they are pagans themselves. And yet we find in the scriptures that those who would give veneration to nature uh, believe that somehow nature is going to be uh, our salvation are fools. Isaiah pointed this out and the ridiculousness of it to the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. It's an interesting section. Isaiah is somewhat sarcastic here, but he's also directly to the point. There are those who may not be doing exactly what this says, but they're in reality doing similar things today. 
Starting in verse 9, it says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. He goes on to explain why. Verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water, becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it in the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak. He raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them, and he warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships, worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts or roasts and satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so that they cannot comprehend. And no one recalls, nor is there any knowledge of understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you see the problem? Utter blindness, utter foolishness to see what they themselves have done. And it really is no different today. We may not have as many who are actually taking physical idols and bowing down for it, but there sure are a lot of substitutes in our own land things that people put all their time and energy into and think that somehow it's going to rescue you. It will be your salvation. Well, how do we respond to these kinds of people? Well, Paul gave us a good example on Mars Hill. Look at Acts 17, verse 6. Acts 17, verse 6. Paul had come to Athens... And as he was there, verse 6 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for his companions to come down from uh, Berea, it says, His spirit was being provoked within him. He was beholding the city full of idols. And Athens, ancient Athens, was full of all sorts of idols. They had lots and lots and lots of gods. They, they collected them from all over. In verse 17, Paul begins teaching the synagogues. In verses 18 through 21, we find Paul is invited to go up to uh, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and converse with them. That's what they like to do. Here's some new thing. Verse 22, here's what Paul says. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examined the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And Paul then goes on through the rest of that section, tells them about the true God, and of Jesus Christ, and their responsibility to repent and turn to him. He seeks to remove their ignorance by declaring the truth to them. So our response to those who are ignorant fools is one of compassion. We seek to educate them with the truth and tell them of the love of Jesus Christ. There's a compassion that we have for them. Now, the number of ignorant fools in our land is continuing to increase. When I was in high school, it was extremely unusual to find someone who did not know at least the rudimentary aspects of the gospel. They knew something about who Jesus Christ is, at least that there was a claim that he was God and that you should be uh, at least sensitive and not use his name improperly. There was a certain decorum about even hearing. There, it was hard to find someone who didn't at least know something. In our own time, that's not true. It's very easy to find children who've grown up and the only time they've heard the word Jesus is as a curse word, an expletive to throw out when they've done something that uh, hurts them or went wrong. Uh, 
they're, they're profaning the name of God in complete ignorance. That means we need to be careful. Sometimes we hear kids cursing and we assume they're doing this on purpose to blaspheme. For the most part, they're not. They have no idea who they're even talking about. Now that gives us an opportunity. If we're going to be compassionate to them, we engage them in conversation and simply ask them, do you know who it is you're talking about when you say Jesus or you say God? Now they're probably going to look like you like, what's wrong with you? But remember, they're ignorant fools. That gives you the opportunity to correct them, to explain this is who Jesus is. This is who God is. And uh, if nothing else, you're at least going to be able to give them a mild rebuke for their ignorant, crude, rude, and blasphemous behavior. But this is what kind of society we're living in now. People are really that ignorant. They don't know. They have not heard. So the ignorant fool is someone who does not know, and our response is one of compassion that causes us to proclaim the gospel to them. Our next category, the educated fool, will demand a different response. Now, the major difference between the educated fool and the ignorant fool is a claim to knowledge, a claim to knowledge. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 speaks about those who, even though they knew God, did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul goes on, he says, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And the rest of the passage goes on to describe a descent lower and lower and lower as people turn away from the true God to follow something else. But professing to be wise, they became fools. That marks the educated fool a claim to be something they actually are not. Now, if you talk with them, they're going to usually claim they know what they're talking about, but you don't. They say you're the fool. You're the one who is ignorant. Now, there are many examples of these types of people. Um, I'm sure we all can think of people we've run into, certain individuals, but there are also certain categories that seem to collect them. Uh, One of the most prominent examples, at least in my mind, are philosophers. Uh, Those of you who have had philosophy in college know exactly what I'm talking about. Those that I have met, it seems that they always come from some sort of a nominal Christian background. They go off somewhere, often to Europe, to study theology, liberal theology, and then turn to the philosophies of the world. And then it seems like their their quest in life is to remove the uh, ignorance and enlightened college students about the myth of Christianity. They're anti-Christian. That seems to be their bent. Now, I waited until I was a senior at the university that I was attending before I took philosophy, and I'm glad I did, because by that time, I had already worked through what I believed and why I believed it. I had dealt with those philosophical questions, but usually it's freshman philosophy. You get it when you're 17, 18 years old. You haven't figured out what you believe or why you believe it. You never even thought about the question, how do I know? And tragically, I saw in my class many that were professing Christians shaken to the roots of their faith because they had never considered those questions before. They didn't know why they believed what they believed and were taken aback at the professor's proclamations even though in actuality they were inane. They were really silly things he was saying. Now the only good thing I will say about this professor is that he graded on class participation. And uh, because of that I was able to get an A because I participated a lot and I disagreed with almost every single statement he ever said. But I did get a good grade because at least he was good in that way. Now, second to philosophy professors seem to be the so-called science teachers that espouse evolution. Now, many of them you will find have extremely high IQs, just as philosophers do. They're extremely intelligent people. But they're committed to something that is absolutely not true science. Uh, You need to understand, evolution is absolutely not true science. It does not follow the scientific method. They're going to claim it does, but if you examine it, you'll find it does not. It is a philosophical view of the world, and everything must be distorted into its system, uh, or it rejects it. Dr. Bonnior, past director of, the research, uh, of research at the National Center for Scientific Research in France, said this, quote, Evolutionism is a fairy tale for grown-ups. 
The theory has helped nothing in the progress of science. It is useless, unquote. It's a good summary of it. Evolution is the philosophical basis for many religions, including human secularism, which is, if you're not aware of it already, by default the official national religion of the United States, because that's what's pushed everywhere in our public uh, domain, in our public schools, the National Park Service, and protected by law. It is a religion, declared so by the Supreme Court. Now, here's the amazing thing. All this brain power available in the minds of so many of these scientists, and what is it used for? Absolute foolishness. And so no wonder the Apostle Paul proclaims this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in eight, verse 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe or the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Right there, understand, you're not going to come to understand the true God through rationalism. He declares it so right here. Going on, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Dropping down to verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, how should we respond to those who are educated fools? They profess to be wise, but they fit the category. They are biblical fools. Well, it depends. If they are educated, but they're actually ignorant, then we need to treat them as ignorant fools, have compassion on them, and give them the reality and the truth of the gospel. It's amazing how many of these people you run into, and they never have actually heard anybody present the gospel to them. They have simply, like a false religion, grown up in this, and that's where they're at. Now, on the other hand, if they are educated and arrogant, they have heard the gospel, and they have rejected it in favor of their own philosophical system, we need to treat them in a different manner. Why? Because this person, having done this, having heard the truth, having rejected the truth, fits the category of dog or swine that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, 6. And there he warns us, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. These are those who are apostates. John talks about that in 2 John verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. There is a point when we need to be very strong with those people, these who are educated fools. We don't need to roll over and play dead. We don't need to be intimidated even when you meet one of these people, whether it's at school or work or somewhere else, even if there's some intellectual giant who can run circles around you, play mind games with you, you don't need to be intimidated. Why? You have the truth as revealed by God, and you need to proclaim it to them. What should you be saying? Be bold. Just go back to the scriptures. So it doesn't really matter what they say. Just go back to the scriptures. How about this one? They have all sorts of ways to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. They can go through all the rationalizations and just go back to the verse. But Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, period. Uh, they're going to go on about, uh, you know, in their pride and arrogance and all sorts of philosophies. Well, go over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And point blank tell them, you know, there's a day that you're going to bow to Jesus. It's just a question of when. Either doing it willingly or unwillingly. Why? Philippians 2, 10, 11. At the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So, yeah, you're smarter than me, but one day you're going to find out you were wrong. Now, you can either admit it now or later, but I suggest now because it goes a lot better for you. If it's later, well, it's, it's really not pretty sight. Why? Well, because Revelation 20.15 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they're thrown in the lake of fire. And, you know, you're smarter than me, but 
I care about you, and I don't really want to see you in the lake of fire. So why don't you bow the knee now to Jesus? Because scripture says so. Just keep going back to the word. You don't have to be able to answer all their rational arguments. Go back to the word. That's what doesn't return back without accomplishing its purpose. We simply go back to that. So we don't, we don't let ourselves be intimidated. You have God with you. You have the word of God with you. You have the truth. What do they have? They have something. Well, they have something. But they have something that you wouldn't want to rely on. And that's that gray matter between your ears. If that's all you've got, you're in trouble. And that's all they've got. The limited wisdom of man, and you have the infinite wisdom of God at your fingertips. So you don't need to be intimidated. Just declare the truth to them and let the Holy Spirit do their work. Now, in addition to this, we need to be careful one other thing. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15, Peter tells those that he was writing to that they needed to be careful how they were dealing with people, that their behavior would be something that would silence them. So he says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who are doing right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So make sure your behavior is beyond reproach before God and properly respectful to those who have authority over you. So we don't become arrogant. That is their deal, not ours. We humbly declare the truth to them, not arrogantly. We aren't there to win an intellectual battle. We are there to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and say, here's the truth. Let the Holy Spirit deal with them. That's one reason why I, I do like the uh, methodology that is used by the, the way of the masters, what they're calling it now, the way that Jesus worked with people, the way that the apostles worked with people. It's declare the truth. Let the Holy Spirit be the one doing the work. That's not up to you. It's not about intellectual prowess. You don't have to know all the answers. You only have to know the truth and then declare it. Then there's the apathetic fool. The apathetic fool. Now, this fool is best seen in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus said, He who is not for me is against me, and he who, is not, uh, he who does not gather with me scatters. Then over in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, we is added this. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. There are those who are apathetic. Do you understand there's no middle ground with God? You can't straddle a fence. And the person who is putting off choosing about Christ is trying to straddle a fence that's not there. Either you're for Christ or you're against him. You either work for him or you work against him. You're either a friend of Jesus or you're his enemy. There's no neutral position. Indifference to the claims of Jesus Christ is a choice. It's a choice to be his enemy. Now, how should we treat that type of fool? Well, on the one hand, we're probably going to treat them a little bit like the ignorant fool. Because a lot of times the problem is, is that no one has really explained the gospel to them. They don't know. They're apathetic because they're in ignorance. And in ignorance, they become apathetic about everything. And frankly, if you had no hope in the gospel and you live in this society and you took a serious look around you, and you took a serious look around the world, I think you would become passive, apathetic, despondent, and despairing. I don't know how else we would go. What hope do you have? Do you have it in the political parties? Not at all. You think politics is going to solve anything? No. Politics change when the hearts of the people change and follow Christ. It's revival that changed nations. It's not going to be there. Power? Money? Those things are fleeting. Fame? No. But we have a truth that they need to hear. Sometimes they're apathetic because they've never heard that there is a consequence to how they live their life. They have bought into the lies that are prevalent around us that somehow, I guess, that whatever heaven is, they, they make it somehow, or 
well, hell's not really that bad. Their friends are there. They'll have a party down there. Well, they don't understand hell. Nobody in hell wants a friend to come there, period. They know the torment, and they don't want you there. Luke 17 tells us about that. They're indifferent because they've never been seriously challenged with the consequence of that unbelief. In those cases, they need to be taught. They need to have the truth declared to them. Now, on the other hand, perhaps they have already heard about these truths. They're choosing to ignore them because they don't believe them to be true. Now, remember that actions ultimately reveal what a person actually believes. So just because they say one thing doesn't mean they actually believe what they say. They may be passive, educated fools. In either of those cases, we need to push them off the fence. Yes, push Humpty Dumpty, okay? Actually, it's a little more than that. Let Humpty Dumpty know that he's sitting on an imaginary, uh, something, a, a figment of his imagination. There is no fence. In fact, the only reason he is not already suffering eternal damnation is because he is in the safety netting of God's forbearance and patience. That's the only reason. If that wasn't true, it's a straight drop into Hades, after which he is, and that's where the torment begins. And then from there, it's to the judgment, the great white throne, and eternal hell. The only thing preserving them is God's safety net of forbearance and patience on his part. When that's removed, there is no hope. There is no fence. That's how we need to respond to the non-Christian who's apathetic about Jesus Christ. Push him off that fence. Let him know what the truth is. However, we need to be aware that according to Revelation 3.16, the verse I read a little earlier, there are those that claim to be Christians who are apathetic as well. Jesus described them there as lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. He had one way or the other, but they're lukewarm. They're apathetic. He says he will spew them out of his mouth. Now, whether these people are really believers or not, I'm not going to discuss that today. I'm citing the passage simply to bring up the issue of the tragic consequences for those that profess to be Christians but are not serious about following him. And there are tragic consequences. True believers who are passive, who are apathetic, who are indifferent, are going to miss the blessings they could have and should have if they would walk with Christ. They will not have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, general self-control. They will be experiencing the opposite. Hate, sorrow, conflict, anxiety, evil, malice, harshness, rage. Those will the things that mark their life and the things they'll experience. Hebrews 12 tells that such people are going to suffer God's chastisement. And that's not a pretty thing. 1 Corinthians 11 describes some who are chastised. Some were sick, physically sick, under his chastisement. Some got it even called home. They had died. In addition, the indifferent Christian is going to live a wasted life. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 speaks to that issue. All the things that they have done in supposed service to him, he describes as wood, hay, and stubble or straw that are burned up. Nothing transfers to eternity. And the stuff we should be doing in serving God should be, as he describes, gold, silver, and precious stones, things that bring a reward in heaven. Their lives will have been a waste. But there's a greater danger. There are those who profess to be Christians. They're unresponsive. They're apathetic in their obedience to Christ. They may be very enthusiastic about religious practices and being involved in things, but they won't obey Christ. To that, to striving for holiness, they're apathetic. They're indifferent. Jesus warns them in Matthew 7, 21 through 29. They profess to know him. They will get to the end of their life. They claim, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things for you? And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It's a false claim. I can't think of anything more tragic than for someone to think they're saved, to think they're going to heaven, they get to the end of their life, they're standing before God, it's now too late. And they found out that they never knew him. They never knew him. 
and they're cast into eternal hell. What do we do for them? We challenge them. Challenge them for what they really believe. Challenge them to examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Not popular among Christians, but it's there. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, lest you fail the test. Do you really know him, or are you really trying to walk with him? What do you really believe? The apathetic fool who claims to be a Christian needs to be lovingly but strongly admonished. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us in a very succinct command to respond to professing believers is what he says there. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. That's a positive thing. Help the weak. You get alongside them. You may have to get dirty in that. But be patient with all men. We get involved. Don't become apathetic yourself. So the ignorant fool needs to be taught. The educated fool needs to be dealt with strongly with the truth. The apathetic fool needs to be forced from their position of indifference. All of them need to be silenced by your manner of life, living in righteousness. Now there's one more kind of fool, the kind of fool we should be, the wise fool. The wise fool is described in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31, but it's very simply stated in a, in a short phrase in chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. And he describes how he got there, but that's a succinct statement. We are fools for Christ's sake, because the world considers the Christian to be a fool. In our own society, that's increasingly prevalent. If you tell people in a science class that you believe in creation, that Noah's flood was real, you're generally going to find your science teacher is going to call you a fool. I know, I've heard it. Some of you have experienced that yourself. So they call you a fool. If you stand up and tell scholars of our universities that you believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God, that it was actually written by the authors claimed to have written it, and that Jesus said what is recorded of him in the Gospels, they will call you call you a fool. They say, you lack proper education. You don't know what you're talking about. If you tell your neighbor that you believe that Jesus Christ is God himself and came as a man and then lived a sinless life and died as a substitute for sin, rose on the third day, and based on that, grants forgiveness for sins if you believe on him, he will say, you're crazy. Where'd you get an idea to believe such a myth like that? That's becoming more and more common. Those considered wise by our society reject the truths of the word of God. For them, Jesus was just a good teacher, a nice man, not really who he claimed. They're dishonest with themselves. Jesus either is who he claimed, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. If he's a liar or a lunatic, he's not a nice man. They're not really being honest. They don't believe the truths about him. They reject it. They don't believe he was born of a virgin. They don't believe he lived a sinless life. They don't believe he performed the miracles, including raising Lazarus from the dead. They don't believe any of that. They certainly deny that he rose from the dead himself. They certainly deny that he is God himself in human flesh. The world will say you are a fool for being a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. How bad is it out there? Something came up this week that I think illustrates it. Representative J. Randy Forbes of Virginia is the chairman of the Non-Sectarian Congressional Prayer Caucus. They uh, rotate praying for about five minutes in a room just off of the, where Congress meets, five minutes at a time, not all together, and they just rotate through there praying for the future of our nation. And it's non-sectarian, whoever will come in, he says, I don't even care if you're a Christian, he's just trying to get them as we need to be acknowledging there's a God, so there's no rules, there's no theology other than we know there's a God and we need to be praying. That's how non-sectarian it is. This past Thursday, those that are involved with this decided to give a series of short 30-second speeches calling America back to prayer. Uh, believe it or not, they received a lot of criticism for that. In fact, uh, one group is saying that it's congressional interference with religion. I still can't figure out what that means, congressional interference with religion, that they are praying themselves and are simply calling America to pray. They're interfering with religion. 
The Poughkeepsie Journal did a call-in poll about it, and here were the results. 55% supported the congressman. 37% opposed it. So locally, over one-third of our people around here oppose congressmen who pray for the future of our nation and ask the American people to do the same. That's how bad it has gotten. The world has some tolerance for those of religion, but the more serious you are about actually following it, the less tolerance it has for you. Those that strive to be faithful to the Bible, to follow Jesus Christ, actually have it change your life, you're considered extreme. You are a radical. You are a fanatic. Amen. Because is that a bad thing? Is it bad to be considered that? Well, consider the examples given to us. What about the apostles? What were they considered? What about Paul? Was he a fanatic? Was he extreme? Was he a radical? I think he was. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. That's pretty radical. I'm trying to be like the Son of God, and you should too. That's pretty radical. But then God's Word tells us that's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing in our lives, isn't he? He's conforming us to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says a very radical thing. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Completely radically different. That which was dead in trespass and sin is made alive together with Christ. That's radical. But you say, well, that's the apostles. You know, that's for leaders of the church. You know, that's for you, Pastor, and, and that's for Ed and John and Ricky. You know, that's for and those Sunday school teachers. Me, I'm just a I'm a pew sitter. Don't bother me. No. This is for everybody. If you're a Christian, you're a new creature. You're a radically changed individual. Some of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott, mostly due to the fact that a movie was released last year that concerned him and Nate Saint and, and the other men that were martyred over 51 years ago now. Jim Elliott was saved when he was fairly young. He committed himself to Bible training. While in college, he was well-known and liked. He was a good student. He was a school champion wrestler. He was a member of the student council. He was uh, president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship. Now, Jim Elliott could have taken a pastor to almost anywhere in America, but he had a different burden on his heart. Even then, there were those that thought it was somewhat foolish to serve God in the radical manner that Jim did. He thought differently. In his diary, he wrote, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. Apparently, he was reading in Hebrews. He started reflecting on that. He continued, he said, am I ignitable? God, deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. But a flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? In me there dwells the Spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. He concluded that second saying, Make me thy fuel, flame of God. That was radical even 51 years ago. Well, God used Jim Elliot in that manner. He put off marriage for a few years as he started his work as a missionary. Elizabeth Elliot writes about that in her book, Passion and Purity, an excellent book for every young person to read, especially ladies. Well, later he and Elizabeth did get married and he brought her down to Ecuador, and they were working among the Quicha Indians. But Jim and his friends wanted to reach another tribe where there was no gospel work going on at all. These were the Akas. They were a fierce tribe, a dangerous tribe. So Jim, along with the other four men, they prayed, they planned, and finally the work began. There was initial success. The Akas seemed to welcome gifts that were dropped to them from the plain. Then they set up a base on a sandbar not too far from the Aka village. And finally one day, a few of them, three of them, two women and a man, came to where their playing was. It was their first contact. They were thrilled by this. More prayer, more planning as they sought to somehow reach the whole village. Well, finally there was a flyover and they saw a group of ten men going toward the missionary camp. Pilot Pete Fleming, raided the base station, said this. Looks like they'll be here for the early afternoon service. Pray for us. This is the day. We'll contact you next at 
They thought finally all this work they had been planning and working, striving for, is finally going to bring fruition. 4.30 came, 4.30 went, there never was any contact. That Sunday afternoon, it was January 8th, 1956. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Roger Yordian, and Ed McCauley. They gave up what they could not keep to gain what they could not lose. Five days later, a rescue party found their bodies in the river. Aka Spears threw them. They gave their lives in the efforts to reach an ignorant people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the world said then, the world still says now, how foolish God allows five men to die. He allowed five women to become widows. He allowed their children to be orphaned. One child was not born until after her father was killed. But Jim Jim Elliott also wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a true statement. He lived by it. He also wrote another statement that I think is very important. When it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. That's pretty hard-hitting, though, isn't it? Make sure all you have to do is die. The world says this was all foolishness. God, though, had a different purpose. God used the deaths of these men to have a call to missions that was extremely strong and powerful. Within three years, contact had been made with that same tribe. Elizabeth Elliot among some of the others, was actually living with the tribe along with her infant daughter, Valerie, among the very people, and she was friends with those who killed her husband. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God used it in a powerful way, and it was nice that last year, finally, a movie was put out about it and gained some some play in the general media. Now, I don't know that God is calling any of you to die as a missionary martyr in some foreign land. I don't know. Maybe he is. Maybe that's true. He might be doing that. But none of us know that. That will only be played out as time goes on and we see what the Lord has for your life. But I do know this, and I know it absolutely. God is calling you to serve where you are right now with the same kind of commitment that Jim Elliott had. I do know that. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 27 this, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Remember, taking up your cross meant to die. It didn't mean putting a piece of jewelry around your neck and, oh, it looks nice. It meant you were taking up what is going to kill you. Whosoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. And Isaiah tells us all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. Jim Elliott again said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep at your life to gain what you cannot lose, eternal life with Christ. Are you afraid to be called a fool for Christ? Are you willing to be such a wise fool? The reality is simply this. You are a fool. It is simply a matter of what type. What type of fool are you? Are you an ignorant fool? Are you an educated fool? Are you an apathetic fool? Or are you the wise fool? A fool for Jesus Christ. You are some type of fool. It's just a matter of what type. I want to be a fool for Christ. The wise fool. I pray that is your desire as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word because it does cut to the very core of all issues. Sharper than a two-edged sword, it divides asunder between the soul and the spirit. Father, something we can't do, you do. Father, it goes to the, the heart of the issue with dealing with an individual. 
forgive us for how often we are intimidated. We don't say what we should say. We don't stand up for you. We often hide and don't even want to let people know that we're followers of you. We become afraid. Afraid that we're going to be called a fool. Afraid that we might be persecuted in some way. Father, forgive us of that and then go beyond it. Stir up our hearts that we might be bold in our faith. Bold not because of arrogance on our part or of any kind of pride, but bold in complete humility relying upon you. In complete humility, simply putting out what you have said and letting that do its work. Father, that we might see your hand and glorify you for it. Father, there's all sorts of fools. My desire is to be a wise fool. I know many share that same desire. But another reality is that this morning, there are those here that are ignorant. There are those who are educated. There are those here that are apathetic. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to do that work for which you have sent. Bring conviction of sin. Bring conviction of righteousness and of judgment. Father, remove the blindness of sin that the truth may be seen, understood, and believed, that the ignorance may be washed away. Father, that the arrogance of thinking that you know better is, is gone and you will have changed that into humility that leads to repentance, a turning from sin and self to our precious Savior. And Father, those that are apathetic, indifferent, complacent, Father, push them off the fence that they may be either hot or cold, but not in this middle ground that is useless. Father, that they may, in your mercy, become hot coals of fire for you, that they would live with the same kind of conviction that Jim Elliot did, understanding that there really is no foolishness to lose what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose, and being prepared that when it does come that time that you call us home, that's all that's left to do. Thank you for the eternal promises of your word that we can stand firm on these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final hymn this morning is a call to resolution. It's a hymn to be sung as your own response. But these are the results.